Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This episode is about the 2004 novel Cloud Atlas. Uh, You may also be familiar with the film that was released in 2012. Um, I haven't seen that, but uh, yes, this is not about the film. This is about the novel written by David Mitchell. Not that David Mitchell, another one. And more broadly, it's about uh, apocalypticism, its sense of time and how the post-apocalyptic novel might kind of respond to and challenge that, um, as you'll hear. My guest is Deletta de Cristofaro. She is an academic who's currently writing a book about post-apocalyptic fiction um, called The Contemporary Post-Apocalyptic Novel, uh, which obviously includes Cloud Atlas in it, among um, many other books. So yes, she's joined me to talk about Cloud Atlas. As you can see, still keeping to that schedule of keeping getting episodes out fairly quickly at the moment. Um, now would be a great time to get uh, a review on, on iTunes or whatever you listen to this for. Um, haven't had a, review, a new review for quite a while. So yeah, it'd be cool to get one on there. It would just help with um, making the podcast more visible and... Yeah, it's actually it's always nice for me to read uh, read something that people enjoy this as well because uh, you know you don't get much feedback doing a podcast so yeah I appreciate that and thank you to those of you supporting me on Patreon the more support I get on there the easiest easier it is for me to keep up a regular regular schedule with the podcast if you head over to patreon.com slash utopian horizons uh, you can sign up there to to support me with um, however much you want to um, a month and you can cancel that anytime so it's no like long-term commitment and if you do that to the level of five dollars a month you'll get access to a whole load of bonus episodes that are up available on there on things like uh, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, Psychopaths, there's a couple on video games, Red Dead Redemption 2 and uh, yeah lots of other stuff as well you can at least go and have a browse there and see if there's anything that um, interests you. Uh, something I haven't mentioned for ages is that I have got a Discord for the podcast as well. Uh, if you want to join that, if you just go to the Utopian Horizons Twitter, which is at Utopian Horizons, the pin tweet has a link to the Discord. So yeah, I always say you can you can if you've got any questions for me or any comments that you, on the episodes or any ideas that you've you've had about something, then you can always email me uh, on UtopianHorizonsPod at gmail um, or tweet me or whatever but if you prefer to just come on the discord and chat to me there then uh, please do i think that's everything i have to say for now um yeah as i said i'd really appreciate the reviews because yeah, if you can support me on patreon that's great but if if you if you can't then uh, a review would be a nice free way to help me because anything that increases the the podcast profile means more people are listening and um, perhaps somebody else will discover the podcast who might be able to to support me on on patreon and then uh, you know that'll feed the whole thing i can keep keep it going um keep up the regularity so uh yeah that was that'll do for this and um i'll leave you now with my conversation with Diletta.
Joining me now is Deletta De Cristofaro. She is uh, an academic and currently working on a book called The Contemporary Post-Apocalyptic Novel, Critical Temporalities and the End Times. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Deletta. Thank you. Hi. So Deletta has come on to talk to me primarily about the novel Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to ask you before we talk about that novel specifically, um, given that you're, you know, this is a post-apocalyptic novel and you're writing a book about post-apocalyptic novels, um, what is it that interests you about post-apocalyptic fiction? And more broadly, why do you think that that's a, a kind of popular thing at the moment? Um, yeah, sure. So I guess that the growing popularity of post-apocalyptic fiction has always been connected to the kind of historical moment in which these texts um, are written. So, uh, you know, they've been popular ever since the second half of the 20th century, I'd say, uh, more and more popular. So like straight after World War II with the Cold War, you had a kind of explosion of texts around um, nuclear holocausts um, Mm. and that kind of has shifted today to a kind of more keen interest in um, environmental breakdown, so climate fiction, which is something that comes in with uh, Cloud Atlas as well, as I'm sure we're going to mm-hmm. talk about. Um, so again, like part of the ways in which these texts have been uh, read and critically interpreted so far has always been through their historical context. And this is something that I am interested in, um, of course, and I'm particularly interested in um, mapping the idea of the Anthropocene, so this new, what well, new, not really in terms of when it started, but in terms of mm. it being popularised. So this geological epoch um, in which um, humankind impact on the environment has become uh, more and more clear. Um, mm. But I'm also very much interested in temporality. Um, so the apocalypse is known also as the end times. So obviously this kind of suggests already just how central um, temporality is to the idea of the apocalypse. And when I first started thinking about post-apocalyptic fiction, which was many, many years ago, um, I was uh, very interested in the fact that a lot of these texts, um, including Cloud Atlas, for instance, kind of imagined the future as a return to the past. So you've got mm. many texts that, for instance, imagine the future as a kind of neo-medieval society, yeah. things like this. So I really wanted to think about why that was the case um, and what that uh, tells us about our understanding of time. And this kind of inspired the entire project about post-apocalyptic fiction. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that that kind of thing of using, you know, where the apocalypse is kind of, you know, wipe stuff out and then it's like a return to kind of a primitivist society yeah. or yeah, like say medieval like a kind of new starting point yeah yeah absolutely so I was interested in thinking about again why that is the case um and especially because traditionally that's not what apocalypse is all about and so I was interested in thinking about uh why there is this shift in the apocalyptic imagination um from, again, uh, kind of 20th century up to the present. Again, my research focuses specifically on 21st century fiction, uh, but obviously a kind of catastrophic apocalyptic imagination has been with us um, for quite a few 
uh, decades now. Mm. Okay, well, something um, something else I wanted, I think it's important to to talk about before we get onto Cloud Atlas specifically, because yeah. um, I, I read a, I read read an essay essay you you've written about Cloud Atlas, and mm-hmm. something you you talk about is the the kind of historical context of uh, apocalypticism and what that means and the relationship of it to ideas of utopia and dystopia. I've always just thought of um, apocalypticism or or the apocalypse, however you want to say it, as dystopian. Like that's the instinctive (laughs) way you would think about it because like an apocalypse is generally a bad thing. Um, So that's that's just how I thought about it. But you you pointed out, um, it's very interesting to me, that it actually has um, historically a very strong link to the idea of utopia um, which seems quite counterintuitive initially so I wondered if you Mm -hmm. could kind of explain that a bit. Yeah absolutely Um, so as you say we're used to think about the apocalypse as this kind of huge catastrophe right the end of the world as uh, we know it and obviously this is the kind of apocalyptic imagery that is everywhere alarmed Mm -hmm. us so in novels obviously like cloud atlas uh, but also say disaster movies for instance so as you say the contemporary apocalyptic imagination is fundamentally dystopian Mm -hmm. but traditionally um the apocalyptic imagination is something quite different because um going back to the kind of etymological meaning of the word apocalypse um in greek the word actually means to reveal and In religious apocalyptic texts, like the book of Revelation, uh, what is revealed is actually a sense um, of utopia after the end of the material world. So, um, again, going back to the book of Revelation, what is revealed to John, uh, who's receiving this revelation from an angel, um, are first of all catastrophes and um, the end of the material world, which is precisely then why, obviously, apocalypse comes to have this Uh, catastrophic meaning but more fundamentally uh, what God is revealing to John is a divine city a utopian kingdom after the end of the material world which is the new Jerusalem Um, and so and again this might sound quite counterintuitive but um, so traditional apocalyptic narratives uh, were written as a kind of comforting narrative Mm -hmm. um so they were written at times of crisis like for instance the book of revelation is written around um, the time in which christians were persecuted so they were written as comforting narratives because they made sense of that time of crisis as just a moment in history uh, and then everything would be made right by this kind of utopian new beginning in the new jerusalem so ultimately and again this is where time comes in, the traditional apocalyptic imagination is about um, this revelation um, of a final utopian resolution to history that would make sense um, of everything that came before, including the moment of crisis in which these texts are written, Uh, which is obviously exactly what doesn't happen in the contemporary apocalyptic imagination. And it's what I'm interested in tracing. So this kind of shift from apocalypse as a utopia revelation to apocalypse as a dystopian catastrophe. Mm. Yeah, the, yeah, that makes perfect sense when you explain it. The, yeah, the apocalypse is just kind of this this point on the inevitable historical trajectory before we get yeah. the promised utopia at the end. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so the, the, the other kind of... Um, 
form of this, I guess, that you, you, you talk about was the, it was kind of a secular form of the kind of utopian mm. apocalypse, which, which is the, the idea of progress, which I yeah. guess you could, uh, I guess you can kind of tie to like an enlightenment thing or maybe even mm. like the end of history kind of neoliberal project. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So yes. So these are all ideas about time, right? Um, and so part of what I do in that, book which is um coming out soon with Bloomsbury is tracing how this um, apocalyptic idea of time as a historical trajectory tending towards this final utopian resolution is actually not just something that characterizes religious apocalyptic texts but it has been secularized and has uh, you know very much informed what we are used to think about as a secular Western modernity, right? Uh, but actually, again, this kind of religious understanding of time is very much at the core of modernity. So progress, for instance, uh, which is this kind of guiding narrative of modernity, can be seen as an apocalyptic narrative because it secularizes this utopian end, right? So mm. obviously we get to utopia not through God's intervention, but through mankind's progress and action um, and uh, neoliberalism as well it's this idea that it is the kind of culmination uh, utopian culmination of modernity right so it's the end of history because it's the best thing that can ever happen basically and um, so we are now according to obviously neoliberal ideology at the end of history and again this is a very um, apocalyptic idea so in other words this traditional understanding of apocalypse is still very much at the core of our understandings of time today but these texts like Cloud Atlas uh, uh, actually subvert these ideas. That's the kind of argument I develop. Mm -hmm. And uh, am I right in saying that you're, you're kind of suggesting that this, um, so this like biblical uh, you know, religious understanding mm -hmm. of apocalypse and this um, like secular idea that's kind of linked to it or developed from it, um, you're kind of saying that both of these are kind of uh, anti-political in a sense, in that they they're both ways of kind of presenting history as like a inevitable uh, path that we're on, and therefore kind of there's kind of little that you can mm. do, sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, in that sense, obviously, part of the problem is that individual agency doesn't have much of a meaning in an understanding of time that is quite deterministic, like the apocalyptic understanding of time, because again, everything is tending towards this resolution that is already there and written from the start. But in another way, it is political in the sense that whoever actually um, is in power and um, traces history through this kind of apocalyptic understanding then can obviously kind of legitimize it itself uh, through this uh, predetermined historical trajectory, if you see what I mean. So there's that, mm -hmm. ten there's that tension between uh, lack of individual agency and at the same time uh, power structures that can actually employ deploy this apocalyptic understanding of time to legitimize themselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and there's a good versus evil dynamic that you identify there as well. But is, is that right? That kind of comes from obviously again comes from this biblical. There's obviously the good versus evil. We can understand that in terms yeah. of the Bible and religion, and that you think yeah. that that's transposed in some way onto these later like secular 
um, versions of time as well. Yeah, because I mean, in the in the traditional apocalyptic understanding of time, obviously uh, part of the ways in which you get to the new Jerusalem, so to this new uh, world, new utopian uh, world, is through the last judgment, right? So there is this kind of clear cut separation mm-hmm. between the elect and the damned, um, and this kind of understanding, as you say, can be transposed also um, in the secular understanding of apocalypse, precisely because those uh, that are in power see themselves as the kind of good elect that are uh, the agents of um, this um, predetermined historical uh, telos. Mm. So it's this idea of, again, uh, whoever legitimizes itself through uh, the apocalyptic understanding of time actually has this tendency to see uh, their actions as the good ones and um, everything else is obviously evil and can be erased. So we're talking like, for example, say like the British state uh, <laughs> civilizing, yes, civilizing the world as like the agent of progress kind of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of research about how uh, colonialism is essentially a kind of apocalyptic dynamic um, so even going back to Columbus, yes, researchers have uh, reading his uh, diaries or letters. Um, basically, they found out that he saw the new American world as the new world of the Bible. So he literally saw himself as discovering, so to speak, the new Jerusalem. And so mm. obviously, again, uh, then uh, whoever came after used this kind of apocalyptic understanding uh, of time and of the new colonial world um, to say that they were obviously bringing about civilization to these lands. And yeah, so a kind of uh, obviously very um, um, problematic dynamic. <laughs> yeah. But yes, um, so you can clearly see again how uh, the apocalyptic understanding of time is so foundational to modernity because obviously modernity is also essentially about colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's. Um talk a bit about so you, you kind of the, the the thing that you're interested in and in, in this book and so on is is the the contemporary post-apocalyptic novel mm-hmm. so you say that there are there's three features that you identify as being um kind of part of the contemporary post-apocalyptic novel which is cloud atlas is is, is yeah. part of that so could you um, tell us what those are please yeah absolutely so um first of all it's this idea that the contemporary apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic novel, as obviously part of the apocalyptic imagination at large in the contemporary, uh, is essentially about apocalypse as a dystopian catastrophe rather than apocalypse as a utopian revelation. So it's that shift that I was talking about mm-hmm. um, a few moments ago. Um, the second one is uh, the idea that these texts are essentially concerned with time and history. Uh, and again, part of the point is that uh, they are concerned with time and history specifically because they're trying to uh, subvert this kind of entrenched uh, apocalyptic understanding of time in uh, modernity. And third, that this concern with time and history um, is embodied in formal features of these narratives. And Claude Atlas is a particularly interesting example because uh, the structure of the novel is very peculiar, um, as I'm mm. sure uh, you've noticed. And you, you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you mm. think that, that these novels are a kind of um, targeting something important in the kind of relationship between 
uh, apocalyptic understanding or approach to time mm -hmm. and the kind of power structures that yeah. uh, that exist now and, and have existed. Again, this link, like you said, between colonialism and and um, neoliberalism that we have yeah. today, uh, global capitalism. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. So uh, again, the idea is that because apocalypticism, so this traditional apocalyptic understanding of time has been so central um, to Western modernity, then these novels, by actually talking about apocalypse in a completely different way from this traditional understanding of time, are trying to uh, subvert and target this nexus between uh, apocalyptic conceptions of time and these power structures that we see um, in today's world. So again, Claudatus um, is a good example of this precisely because it's a novel that spans uh, a kind of trans-historical um, plot because it begins in the 19th century, so the area of colonialism, and ends in a post-apocalyptic future. Um, so it really traces the kind of centrality of the apocalyptic understanding of time to Western modernity, but also subverts it by actually showing an end that is not at all a utopian end. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's get on to, to talking about um, Cloud Atlas specifically then. Um, I'll just try and explain the novel briefly just for the benefit yeah. of people who, who haven't uh, read it or, or may have read it some time ago. Um, so there's six stories in it. Um, mm -hmm. There's the, the journal of Adam Ewing, and this is about his travels, uh, his kind of encounter with colonial, encounters of colonialism. Yeah. Uh, we've got Letters from Zedelgem, which is a composer, a young composer who's running from debt, and he goes to Belgium and convinces uh, an old, kind of formerly successful composer to hire him. Um, this, mm -hmm. is the, this is a, a narrative uh, that's told in the form of like letters. And we've got ha uh, Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery, which is like a genre detective novel about um, a journalist investigating the corruption of a, a company building a nuclear power station. Mm -hmm. The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, which is about a vanity publisher who finds himself kind of imprisoned in a nursing home and tries to escape. We've got an Orison of Sunmi 451, which is a science fiction story about mm. Mm, a clone kind of becoming um, aware or, uh, yeah, a clone who's like only kept in like a fast food restaurant where they, where she, where she works like the whole time and never leaves and she escapes and kind of becomes aware. And it's depicting this, this hyper consumer um, society uh, kind of a mix between hypercapitalism and Chinese style state power. And then the last one is uh, uh, Slicious Crossing and Everything After, which is um, a, a post disaster, like uh, primitivist um, society that's yeah, yeah. returned to like basic conditions after an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, those are the stories. And um, the uh, they are laid out, each of those stories is, is divided into two parts. So, um, we start with Adam Ewing's uh, first part and we end with the last part of Adam Ewing and it goes like that. So the um, letters from Zedegum, the second one about the uh, guy, the composer, is the second from last one and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yes, so that's the that's the layout and that's the the structure of the book. So... You 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 think that the the structure of the book here is is kind of vital to the way that you read the the novel in the post apocalypse, right? So, 
Um, yeah. yeah, maybe you could talk a bit about the significance of, of the structure. I know you used, you've used various terms to, to kind of talk about it. It's like a boomerang structure, also a yeah. concertina structure. So yeah, but if you could maybe explain uh, those things, yeah. that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously it is quite a complex um, structure and many critics um, have put a lot of attention to the structure because obviously it's a novel that in many ways requires um, to be read by paying particular attention to the structure. And Mitchell himself um, uh, kind of scatters a series of images uh, through which we can read um, the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the ones that I use are two images that um, Timothy Cavendish gives us uh, in The Ghastly Ordeal. Uh, and so at first he talks about um, time um, not as an arrow, but as a boomerang. So if you think about the structure of the novel, that again goes from, in the first half of the novel at least, goes from the 19th century to the post-apocalypse, but then in the second half of the novel actually boomerangs back from the post-apocalypse to the 19th century, then obviously mm -hmm. this is a kind of productive way to um, understand um, the novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that again, this partially captures that uh, first um, idea of um, the shift from apocalypse as a utopian revelation to apocalypse as a dystopian catastrophe. Because again, here, the arrow of time uh, is not towards a utopian resolution, but it's actually towards a very dystopian resolution, right? Mm. Um, so it perfectly embodies this kind of shift um, in the apocalyptic imagination that I argue is a critical shift of the traditional apocalyptic understanding of time. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously, again, after uh, the post-apocalyptic central section, uh, the novel kind of boomerangs back to the 19th century. Um, and I think that this is interesting because um, it's one of the ways through which the novel is trying to actually open up spaces for um, individual agency um, against this kind of very deterministic understanding of time uh, that uh, traditional apocalypse is all about. But then there's another image that um, Timothy gives us, um, which is the image of the concertina. So he says, uh, time, no arrow, no boomerang, but a concertina. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I find this image quite interesting because the concertina is made of, like as an instrument, right? It's made of uh, folds um, and it's made of repeating patterns. Mm -hmm. And throughout the novel, you have a lot of repeating patterns throughout the ages. Um, and one of these repeating patterns is this sense that uh, people and power specifically um, are driven by uh, this sense of time as uh again, going towards a utopian resolution, but actually that this sense of time only feeds empowers power structures. Um, so, for instance, in the first narrative, the 19th century one, uh, there is a moment in which a preacher is talking about uh, a future new world towards which history is standing, 
where finally all races, he says, will embrace their um, place um, in the ladder of civilization. And obviously, this is an incredibly racist and colonial understanding of time mm-hmm. um, and the world. But again, it's a very apocalyptic understanding of time and the world. So I argue that basically the novel, through these kind of patterns of repetition, actually shows just how pervasive and dangerous the apocalyptic understanding of time is empowering these power structures. And again, I think that this is one of the ways through which the novel actually tries to expose um, just how much the apocalyptic understanding of time has informed modernity, but also tries to challenge it it ultimately. Mm -hmm. So um, part of this, I I guess, is uh, to kind of... um... So, so one of the, the the problems with the kind of apocalyptic understanding of time is the obviously the the idea of inevitability and yeah. that we are, we are unable to to kind of be uh, individual or collective actors who can affect some kind of change that yeah. takes us in a different direction. So, you, do you feel like this this kind of as you say because it takes us to the post-apocalypse, then it takes us away again back to the past and you think there's some kind of um attempt to suggest that you yeah, to, to make us think very clearly about how inevitable that future might be uh or, or you know um to, to to think of that future as something that can be averted yeah i think that what the novel is really trying to do is um to try and challenge this sense of inevitability that is so um, entrenched in an apocalyptic understanding of time. So there are, I think, two central images um, that frame this critique. And one is um, in the central kind of post-apocalyptic section, which is the only one that is um, uninterrupted, right? All the other ones actually are interrupted and then begin again in the second half. But the central story, which is the post-apocalyptic story, is the only one that is uninterrupted. And at the end of that story, we have a character that seems to be directly making an appeal to the reader to actually uh, listen um, to uh, the story that... Somni is about to tell, so the clone is about to tell in the next section. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this is obviously a story of exploitation, of in many ways neocolonialism, uh, right? Um, and it's a story of um, environmental risks because it's a dystopian kind of future in which there are many dead lands, um, as Mitchell puts it, that are advancing. And then from this story, again, we go back in time to the 19th century. Um, So, you know, if we take this appeal, we're actually following uh, time back, time boomerang, boomerang, yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) back to the 19th century. And that story closes uh, with uh, Adam talking about his mission um, to take part in the um, abolitionist movement. So you can clearly see just how concerned in many ways the novel is with colonial dynamics and um, uh, racist dynamics. So he's talking about his work as an abolitionist and he's talking about it as uh, the fact that it is just one drop in an ocean, but still uh, that is also quite important. So it's a novel that really closes with this uh, emphasis on the importance of individual agency, um, I think, with this kind of closing image. And again, I link it back to this attempt to subvert uh, the apocalyptic Um, and deterministic understanding of time that would obviously deny any sense of individual agency. 
Mm. Uh, one, one of the other things I like that you, you mentioned about the structure was um, the the the, uh, the the way it undermines the technique of foreshadowing. Mm. So you you talked about how yeah obviously foreshadowing, which we have in traditional plots, kind of ties into this idea of inevitability because yeah yeah so I thought that was quite interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because in traditional plots, obviously the ending. Um, is already there right um, so you can literally go to the ending of the novel and it's there and everything um, you know when, when, in traditional kind of plots you read other very specific detail and most likely you will already be thinking about how that might actually play a part in the kind of resolution that mm. the end will bring about um, and uh, this is something that other critics like uh, Frank Mode many, many years ago um, has defined as the sense of an ending and again is a very kind of apocalyptic understanding of time applied to narrative. But because Claude Atlas um, has, um, so each story, as I said, is interrupted um, in the first half and then is uh, then begins again in the second half, this sense of foreshadowing is very much challenged uh, because again, we have to... Uh, wait for the second part um so in many ways it plays with our reliance on foreshadowing to make sense of these plots and kind of subverts uh, our reliance on foreshadowing and also the other thing is that the apocalypse which is supposed to be again this end that makes sense of everything that comes before right is actually absent it's a gap in the story mm. we don't know what the apocalypse ultimately was um, so this too is one of the ways through which the novel is undermining foreshadowing. Um, and finally, all the narratives kind of end in a very open way. Um, so obviously I've talked about how uh, the, the central post-apocalyptic chapter ends, which is uh, this kind of opening to the following story uh, by the clone. And this is precisely how all of these stories end, actually. They uh, end by actually leading on to the following story. So there is this sense of endings that are not endings in many ways because they are quite open. And then uh, the final one, which is a 19th century diary, ends with this idea of individual agency. So it's a kind of call to action to the reader, uh, so to carry on this action in uh, our world. So in many ways, the sense of an ending itself, um, which is intertwined with foreshadowing, is undermined by all these dynamics. Mm. Uh, it's probably worth us mentioning as well the, the stories are really uh kind of folded into each other in lots of different ways and um, not just in yeah. terms of the literal structure but the so the uh the, the journal from the first story for example is found and read by the character in the second story uh the louisa ray story is a novel that tv timothy cavendish has so all the all the like characters and stories uh like appear within each other um they also have this thing uh of the birthmark which um yeah, yeah as you say you, you you said in your essay it's not really kind of a it's one of those things that seems like it's going to be quite important narratively at, at first uh but it's, yeah. it's just so the, the idea is yeah every character has this birthmark mm -hmm. that's like the same so i don't know it suggests some kind of vague idea of re reincarnation but it's yeah. not really it's not explored at all beyond just the fact of it, it draws a link between all the stories but it's never like explained or made an important factor 
No, absolutely. It seems like, I mean, it, again, it's one of those repeating patterns, right, that I was talking about for the image of the concertina, but it's definitely not something that Mitchell explores uh, that much. Uh, it's it's an interesting kind of image in the sense that it's a comet, um, so it kind of connects, the birthmark is a comet, so it kind of connects with this idea of catastrophe, right, that looms over the novel, because obviously it's it's a post-apocalyptic um future the one that the novel is talking about but other than that it's not uh, fully explored but as you say there are other ways through which all the narratives are connected um, and one of the ways uh, is essentially this constant act of reading or viewing because the ghastly ordeal uh, of Timothy Campbell actually becomes a movie that then um, the, post, uh, the, the, the clones see in the fifth narrative uh, but yes they're all connected because each narrative is consumed by uh, the previous one, um, uh, as Mitchell himself puts it in an article, uh, in the sense that uh, you've got characters actually reading or viewing the previous narrative. Um, so that's this is one of the ways through which uh, this very complex plot um, uh, kind of coalesces together. Mm. And the, these... Uh... These links, these links that it's is drawing and kind of um, yeah folding into each other. So you you think it's it's um, very clearly trying to d- draw uh, parallels between uh, so um, colonialism, um, cap- uh, sort of modern global capitalism, uh, biopower. I think is another. Yeah. Um, yes, biopower because in the Sumni uh, story, um, so there is a kind of um, it's called corporacy. Uh, so it's a kind of conflation of a of state and corporate power um, that have created this um, uh, these clones uh, that are designed to perform these kind of menial jobs, and so they exist solely to perform these menial jobs. Uh, but they're given this kind of illusion that um, they are going to be released at some point at uh, what's called exaltation um, and finally become uh, consumers, which is in this uh, hyper-capitalist world, uh, it's basically a synonym for uh, human uh, beings, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously doesn't happen. Um, but it is a form of biopower precisely because the state has a total power over these clones uh, from their birth to their death, essentially. Uh, but yes, so part of my argument is that these kind of repetitions are all about showing how um, an apocalyptic understanding of history sustains different forms of power. So from colonialism to the neocolonialism of these, um, uh, of this um corporate state over the clones because again uh, I was talking about how uh, in um, the 19th century narrative you've got the preacher talking about this kind of racist new world uh, in which all races are finally embracing their place on the ladder of civilization Um, so again the new world is a very kind of apocalyptic imagery but it's the same um, image that recurs with the clones because this exaltation that I was talking about, so this moment in which they should be released, um, is again presented as a kind of utopian new world, Um, except that it obviously isn't um, because the clones are actually sent to die rather than being released at exaltation. Um, So it's again just a way, this uh, image of the apocalyptic new world uh, for which power kind of legitimizes and sustains um, itself. 
this might seem weird to say, but I feel like uh, that story, the the science fiction one, mm. was was like the uh, mo- the one that was like most about our current moment. Even though yeah. it's like so far in the future, it's so it's such an obvious representation of our current kind of uh, structures and power. I think. Absolutely. I know, I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking about stuff like the. It's got like so. There are production zones in like Africa and yeah. Indonesia. I think that supply yeah. the consumer zones, which is obviously very yeah. literal. Um, yeah. Global South, global North. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Things like the uh, yeah the the conflation of of business and politics. When you think yeah. of like the kind mm-hmm. of technocratic approach to to politics. Um, Obviously, uh, one of one of Donald Trump's early pitches was like he's a businessman, so that means mm-hmm. he's going to be good at politics because yeah. yeah, politics is just business, same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm from Italy originally, and yeah, we had Berlusconi there, who was obviously the same kind of idea. So, um, a politician that was ultimately a businessman um, and that was voted in power precisely because he was a businessman. So the idea that yes, if you run a business well that's also quite debatable, then you will run the country well, right? So it's definitely that kind of conflation of corporate and state power that Mitchell is talking about um, in Cloud Ashes. Yeah. 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 Um, another side, but just something I always find interesting is I liked also in that story, um, there's this kind of uh, like uh, like semi illegal like slum areas like that are yeah. also pleasure zones um mm. i always find really interesting these these things where elite things that are illegal are kind of uh, necessary to, for the the system to function like things that are technically outside the system are necessary for it like it because they use people that uh people they get like organs from people who mm. have kind of reached rock bottom there so like the rich can get you know, organs and stuff there it's a way that they place that they can go to do things that they're not allowed to do in the other system it's kind of to- uh, tolerated yeah yeah so it's a kind of release zone outside of uh yeah semi-legal basically yeah uh, and i mean it's it's it, it's a trope that recurs in other post-apocalyptic narratives and um, as you were saying now i was thinking about Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, where again, there is a sense of uh, the plebeians, which are these zones in which uh, there are kind of outside the control of the corporate state, but where again, uh, they are these kind of release zones for the rich to go and enjoy themselves with things that they couldn't do in their, you know, proper um, controlled um, zones. And again, I think it's, uh, as you were saying, it's a kind of dynamic between, it's a literal kind of application of the global north global south dynamic obviously um i think um in these novels yeah uh, so yeah it, it works in terms of as well of like supporting that like, the ideology as a whole because it's like you can you have to abide by the ideology and the, the kind of systems and rules but okay there's this little bit here where you yeah. can uh not do that so that you can come back here and yeah. do it yeah yeah, I yeah. That. Um, and it doesn't matter because, of course, I mean, as in uh, Cloud Atlas, uh, these zones are all about, obviously, the clones that are not uh, conceived as human, right? So that's part of the point. You can do whatever you want because um, yeah, it's not yeah. part of how humanity is conceived um, in these, uh, by power, essentially. Yeah, well, one other aside, uh, I, I quite like the fact, I think that there's, um, there can be a, a dangerous 
tendency of obviously um kind of consumer capitalism is kind of mm. hurting us towards um disaster and there can be this kind of tendency to romanticize like um a kind of uh ideal like primitivist kind of what's the word i'm looking for um like a kind of nostalgia no i'm not sure yeah yeah, yeah like yeah like a nostalgia for a uh, you know returning to yeah. a kind of pre-industrial like way of yeah. life or whatever I, I like the fact that the um the Slusha's narrative shows the kind of yeah it, this this kind of romanticization of a kind of primitive life is not this mm. is like a horrible existence it's got yeah. the, the 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 absence of medical care and so on and so forth yeah. i think that's uh important to do <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's obviously, again, it's a very dystopian future. Uh, it's it's obviously not a, a kind of good solution to uh, the environmental risks that the previous narrative um, uh, portrays right through the deadlands. So the kind of uh, logical endpoint to those deadlands is actually a full on uh, dystopian apocalypse. Um, and what ensues is this kind of uh, primitivist society uh, where life is incredibly fragile. Um, so yeah yeah okay could, could you um so you talked uh, a bit in your essay about uh, virtual histories and real histories um could you maybe explain a bit about that because i think maybe that will help as well to kind of illuminate this whole thing of um the idea of how this uh, apocalyptic understanding of time and so on is kind of used by power yeah um so the 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 sole idea of virtual um and real histories comes from a passage um in um the uh louisa ray story uh in which there is a scientist um isaac sucks that is talking about um history and it's um so essentially he's talking about um how we don't ever have access to the real past because what we have access to uh, are just documents right from the past and our narratives about mm-hmm. the past um so and this is a kind of very postmodern idea so the idea that all we have are narratives uh, in many ways we construct reality through these narratives and obviously this is even more true with the past precisely because the past is the past right um mm-hmm. so there is no real history there there are just virtual histories uh which also kind of leads to this whole idea that, uh, you know, whoever is in power controls the version of history that uh, we as a general public are being uh, told. But what I find interesting about this whole moment in the novel is also that Isaac says that symmetry demands uh, also a kind of virtual um, versus real future. And so the idea is that those in power not only kind of construct the past to actually legitimize themselves, but also construct a virtual kind of future in order to legitimize themselves again. Um, So it's the whole idea, uh, again, of the apocalyptic understanding of time as this uh, kind of teleological uh, line directed towards utopia. It's obviously a virtual kind of narrative about the future, right? It is a narrative, but it's a narrative mm-hmm. that can have very kind of real effects, uh, precisely because it can be used by those in power to legitimize certain actions, like, uh, sorry, as part of this kind of trajectory uh, that is already predetermined. Um, so, for instance, again, uh, with colonialism 
It's the whole idea that if you believe that you're actually bringing civilization um, to these other lands, then obviously whatever you do is fine because you are just fulfilling this kind of goal of history, right? So that is a virtual future in many ways, but it's a virtual future that has very real consequences. Yeah, I think yeah, we, I think most people are probably familiar with the idea of um, you know like uh, the, the victors writing history and yeah. so on and so forth. But yeah, but not so much to, to think about. Yeah, those in power writing the future as a way of of kind of uh, entrenching their power as well. So I think it's quite a useful yeah. uh, idea. Um, yeah, I wonder as well because obviously you're talking about this idea of of. of uh, utopian narratives being used to like justify power so whatever the idea of um a perfect racial hierarchy being used to justify colonial oppression or yeah. um the idea of um yeah so on and so forth i wonder if it, if we might have the kind of dystopian uh mm-hmm. virtual futures if you like if they could be used the same way so i'm thinking of things like how people are starting to talk about climate change and you're starting yeah. to see some kind of uh eco fascisms emerge that kind of justify the for example brutally enforced borders based on a dystopian apocalyptic Mm. narrative uh you know the idea of this is where we're heading so that justifies us yeah Yeah, as as opposed to we're heading for this utopia so that justifies (laughs) what we're doing now we're heading for this dystopia so we need to do this and this and this uh yeah i mean yeah you're absolutely right obviously both can be used um I mean, again, part of the point about virtual futures, um, so B-Day, utopian or dystopian, is that they can actually be used to uh, justify uh, dynamics in the present. Um, what I think is interesting, again, about a novel like Cloud Atlas or many other post-apocalyptic novels, is that they're actually trying to suggest that uh, we should be open in many ways to a variety of different understandings of the future precisely because if we hold on to one narrative of the future then obviously the risk is this kind of um, quite oppressive dynamic ultimately um, so the, the, the very fact that Cloud Atlas for instance ends in the 19th century uh, kind of again suggests um, the importance of agency to actually um, shape the future so it, it, it draws attention to all that hasn't happened from the 19th century onwards, because obviously you know, a lot of uh, Adam's grand plans about the future um, have not come true. So there are a lot of unrealized possibilities. But again, at that point in time, which for Adam was the present, all those were equally possible. So it's important to keep in mind that the future is not set in stone. It's something that we shape through our actions. And so in that sense, we shouldn't hold on to a single version of the future if you see what i mean yeah absolutely okay well let's um move on to the to, to the ending of of the book so uh as you, as you've mentioned previously um this this ends with, with uh adam ewing kind of making this commitment to ab- abolitionism yeah. so what do you what do you think the ending kind of leaves us with in terms of its critique or the strategy that it's trying to sort of leave us with yeah I mean I think that it really does leave us with the sense of um, openness in many ways precisely because it ends with this um, 
sentence, what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? So it really does emphasize the importance of individual agency, even though obviously one single action um, is just a drop in an ocean, but it's still important um, to actually uh, act. Um, and it also ends with the rejection in many ways of, um, again, deterministic understandings um, of uh, time, um, like the apocalyptic one. Uh, because, uh, again, the point is that by going back to the 19th century, in many ways, Mitchell is uh, erasing the kind of a post-apocalyptic future that he has traced, uh, right? So uh, time's arrow has become a boomerang. We're going back. And so there is this sense that the post-apocalyptic future that is in the middle could actually be averted. So what I find interesting is, again, this sense of undermining determinism uh, in narratives, because the sense of an ending in this specific narrative is challenged, but also in history, precisely because there is a sense that the future can take different shapes. Um, so I really do think that what it ends with is the sense of opening rather than the sense of an ending of um, apocalyptic narratives. Mm. So in that sense, would you, would you say it kind of at least got like a utopian drive? I mean, in, in the sense of... Obviously, it's the same novel, but I mean, the sense of this insistence on undermining determinism and the idea that, you know, the, the future is going to be based on contingencies and things that we can yeah. affect. And that, that seems yeah. like a, a kind of utopian uh, project that it has. Yeah, but it's not a closed one. So in other words, it doesn't give you a recipe for, you know, a closed systemic view of utopia yes um but it is open uh, so again part of the problem with the apocalyptic narrative is that uh, the utopia the utopias that it traces are very closed right they're very deterministic uh, whereas here it's just that sense of an utopian impulse if you wish but it's not closed down to a specific kind of vision okay yeah that, that makes sense obviously if you're linking this kind of uses of a uh, time is narrow, if you like, inherently linked to the kind of being exploited by power, then yeah. it makes sense that the the, the openness is, is the kind of, yeah, opposite yeah. of that, the way to Yeah, absolutely. It. Which I think is something that really does recur in uh, the contemporary post-apocalyptic novel, this sense of openness rather than closure. Mm, that's sure. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much. It's been uh, fun you. to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. And yeah, if people would like to read more about that, um, so you, 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 the, the book's not out yet, right? No, it's out in December. Um, sorry, but um, yeah, it's out on Bloomsbury's website already. Um, so yeah, so it will be out in December. So yeah. yeah, okay. Well, yeah, you just Google it. It's the contemporary post-apocalyptic novel, critical temporalities and the end times. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can you can also you can find. Uh, the letter on Twitter, if you'd like to, on uh, mm -hmm. Ted Dilta. Yeah, it's the anagram of my name. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay. T-E-D-I-L-T-A. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. That's the end of my conversation with the letter. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of me talking about utopia and dystopia and so on and so forth, then please check out patreon.com slash utopian horizons where you can get access to loads of bonus episodes. And um, yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, a review uh, would be really helpful at the moment. Uh, yeah, other than that, just get in touch with me if you've got anything to say on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at utopianhorizons or facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. 
I will be back soon. Cheers.